Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Good morning, I'm Elise, and I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 19. And to the angel of the church in Thyatria write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatria, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask for the grace to be open to you this morning, to be open to you through the words of scripture, through Joel's message, through the people around us. We bless Joel with great wisdom and clarity to speak words of life and truth. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Elise. So as a church, we've been going through the opening chapters in the book of Revelation. And there's a few things that I think are worth noting to help locate you, because you may be just dropping into Mosaic right now, and so uh, to just open Revelation 2, uh, verses 18 through 29 and start reading, it can throw you off a little bit. What is going on here? And so I hope as part of this intro to just help give you a sense of where we're at John, the author of Revelation, is writing a word of the Lord. He's functioning with a prophetic voice to send news updates and uh, encouragement and challenges to churches in the region of modern-day Turkey. And John is an expert when it comes to the Old Testament. 
And so as he writes to them, and as he encourages them, he's using vivid Old Testament language, colorful language, powerful language, echoes back to what God has done through his work of redemption. And he's using that to wake people up, to uh, stretch their imaginations in day-to-day life through the humdrum of our to-do lists and the pressures and circumstances that we face, just the things that we have to get done. We can be too quick to forget that God is God, that God is all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, and he acts in our world. And so John's language, it's intended to wake up your imagination to the reality that God is still working. So John uses in chapter 1, in the opening section in verses 9 through 20, this vision of the Son of Man, calling back to the Old Testament books of Daniel and Ezekiel, this powerful imagery to wake people up. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is king. And then John, through the words of Jesus, begins to unpack messages to seven churches. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he sends a message or a letter to the church in Ephesus. And you, you maybe remember that Ephesus, the Christians there, they had their theology. It was tightly packed and locked down. The Ephesians, they knew what was what when it came to their theology. But what they struggled with was actually loving other people. It seemed like in the uprightness of their theology that they had forgotten how to actually love and care for the people around them. And so John writes to the church in Ephesus to both encourage and challenge them. Then in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2, John writes to the church in Smyrna. And with Smyrna, remember, they were facing uh, persecution at a significant level. They already weren't in a spot with lots of resources to navigate the ups and downs of life. And so to face outward persecution from the government because of their faith, because the powers that be wanted them to give up their profession of faith in Jesus and turn a different direction, they were struggling. So John writes words of encouragement to them to point them back to Jesus. Then, continuing on, in verses 12 through 17, the church in Pergamum. There, uh, the Old Testament echoes of uh, the prophet uh, come forward. Balaam and Balak are mentioned. But what was going on there is that people were tempted to worship, to intermingle from a religious standpoint, with the culture and sex of their day. They were tempted to take on the practices of pagan religions or other religions around them, giving up the worship of the one true God, the one who had made covenant promises to them, and instead turning different directions or adding to it. So that was the church in Pergamum. And then today, this morning, as Elise just read from verses 18 through 29, the church in Theatira which is very similar, actually, to the church in Pergamum. As she read, you get a sense of both encouragement in the opening, but then challenge. And so I go through this not only because I want you to have a sense of where we're at in these letters to the seven churches, 
But I want you to see that there was more than seven churches in uh, Turkey or Asia Minor when John was writing. But what he was doing is business with Christians in their community settings after they had professed faith in Jesus, but they had to keep walking in that faith. They were called to continue to grow up as a community to be more like Jesus. And if I'm being honest, growing up to be more like Jesus is harder than one may think. You may make a Christian profession of faith. You may be baptized into the church. You may uh, begin to take on and sing these new songs and pray these prayers. But over time, the pressures of life can become strong. They can press in and distract you. They can sidetrack you. And so in these seven churches, John is writing to do business not just with the Christians in Asia Minor, but with you and I today. John's inviting you in, if you're here this morning and hearing this news of King Jesus for the first time. John says, welcome. This is your only hope in life and death. But maybe you have professed faith in Jesus for some years. and You're beginning to feel those pressures in different ways. That's where we hope these letters to the seven churches are instructive. You can work through them and say, where are the areas that me or my community may be encouraged, but where we may also be challenged. And so as we go through this as a church, that's what you can be looking for as part of Mosaic Silver Spring. Okay, so in... uh, This year, there was a new series about the Baltimore Police Department that a guy named George Pelicanos put out together with someone named David Simon. And you may not know this, but George Pelicanos and David Simon, they both worked on this show called The Wire uh, some years ago, also about the city of Baltimore. And George Pelicanos, he lives in Silver Spring. He's an East Silver Spring resident. You may or may not have known that. But what I found challenging about their work is that Uh, As they unpack uh, the dynamics of the Baltimore City Police Department in this new series, they go after this question of how does an institution that's designed to carry out justice, how is it that oftentimes they can go different directions? They can fail to carry out justice and can wander off in different directions. And through six fast-paced episodes of this new series, the focus is on this group called the Gun Trace Task Force. And this task force is made up of a number of plainclothes police officers in Baltimore who are pressed in uh, with the pressures and reality of their work as police officers trying to carry out justice. And one of the recurring questions through the series that I found most interesting is when a moral dilemma would be presented to the characters on the show uh, where there would be a set of rules in place. Here are the steps that you follow. And the newer, greener police officers would say, oh, let's follow the rules. And then someone else would come along and say, no, 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 that's not how we do it. This is Baltimore. And that phrase came up, and it's it's said without meaning, like, oh, this is Baltimore. That's the explanation. So when uh, there's something that is supposed to be done by the book, and you don't do it by the book, why do you do it? This is Baltimore, so the show would have you think. Why, uh, if we see something that's not quite right, do we not elevate this through the chain of command for accountability? 
This is Baltimore. So the answer goes through the show. And the cumulative effect of the force of this through the six episodes is that you see that these small decisions where excuses are made to not do the right thing, when confronted to, with a moral dilemma of making the wrong choice, that there is a cumulative, institutional, corporate effect on those discrete decisions over days, months, and years. And when John writes to the church in Theatira, he is effectively calling out the same thing. He is saying to them, listen, when you had the choice to take on these cultic practices of the people around you, you were way too satisfied with the answer, this is Theatira. And so that's why we do this. When you were tempted to eat at meals the food that was sacrificed to idols, when you know that everyone around you would see that as worship, you were too quick to offer up the answer, but this is Theatira. This is how it goes here. John is writing to the church to challenge them to not be satisfied with those quick, easy answers that write off and work through the moral dilemmas of their day. John's writing to you and I to say, when we're confronted with a choice of doing good or doing evil, or doing good and just compromising a little bit, but maybe it's not that bad, we, you and I this morning, friends, and us as a community, have to think very carefully about how we answer that question. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in two points. Holding fast to the truth and holding faithfully to Jesus. So in verse 19, John, as he's writing, he says, and please follow along with me here if you have your Bibles in front of you. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So in verse 19, high praise for how the community has been living. Not only did they believe the news of Jesus' resurrection, they embraced it, they turned in faith, they said, yes, that's what I'm going to hold on to, the good news of Christianity, that Jesus has gone to the cross to pay the price of sin for you and me, and that that's my only hope for resurrected, new, redeemed life. I'm going to turn in faith and believe it. Not only did they do that, They began to live as if that were true. And they began to live as if that were true in a very public way where everyone could see it. You see, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I believe. But then in the ins and outs of your life, you just live however you want. In verse 19, John is praising the whole community of Theatira because they had lived out their professed faith. Take note of what he says here in verse 19. Their love, their service, their patient endurance. These are things that would have been on display. They don't just mean love in your heart. They don't mean patient endurance in your own headspace. They mean the ways in which you're interacting with one another and the ways in which you're interacting with your neighbors that your faith is on display even though life is hard. It's not that they were perfect, and we're going to hear more about that in just one second, but it's that their confession of faith 
that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, translate it into how they walk through day-to-day life. And I think that's helpful for each of us to recognize that the trajectory of the Christian life is not to become a more authentic version of yourself. What it means to be a Christian is not for you to get in touch with uh, truly who you are. Or I I just want to be the most real version of me. That has nothing to do with the trajectory of the Christian faith. The trajectory of the Christian faith is becoming more and more like Jesus himself. It's becoming more and more in who you are and in how you live to look like the one to whom you've been united. So for us, that doesn't like for the church in Theotira, mean perfection. That's why we can confess our sins each week. We can say, yeah, we're not there yet. We uh, still live in ways where we're far too enamored with technology or things like Instagram than uh, we are with who Jesus has called me to be. And that's okay. Perfection isn't what we're called to be as Christians. But the trajectory where we're headed is to grow up in our faith to become more and more like Jesus. And the application, why this is so important for you, is so often we can think about where I'm at in my own spiritual life based on how I feel or how I think I'm doing relative to living up to who I want to be or my true self. The challenge or calling for us as people of God who've been united to Jesus is to, when we think about how we're doing, when we think about how we're maturing in our spiritual lives, is to think, am I living in a way that follows the demonstrated model and teaching of Jesus himself. Am I becoming more and more like Jesus? Is a shorthand way. Now, how would you know that? Read the Gospels. Live in community with other people who can actually see the ways in which you're living because you may be blind to some things. Part of the value of being in a community that's multi-ethnic, that has people of different generations, that has kids in it as well, and kids are a live part of our church, is that there's plenty of opportunity for lights to be shined on the blind spots where you fail to live up to be like Jesus. That's okay. Because remember, the standard isn't perfection. The standard is for us to grow up in our faith to be more like him. And so that we can hear words of encouragement about our own faith, our own perseverance, our own long-suffering, our public witness of loving our neighbor. But there was danger for the Christians in Theatira who started out this way and didn't continue. Jesus was calling to them not only this word of encouragement, but challenging them to hold on to faithfully Jesus in his, all of who he is. In verse 20, we get the beginning of a long challenge to the church. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This is an Old Testament illustration. It it comes from 1 Kings chapter 16. You can go back and read it later. Just make a note, 1 Kings 16. 2 Kings chapter 9 is another spot where Jezebel is mentioned. You can go back and read. This mention of Jezebel, it's an echo to the days of kings. It's an echo to someone who came into the community but led people the wrong direction. 
someone who was a leader and recognized and respected or had a position of power within the community of the people of God, but led them astray. So I know that the phrase Jezebel, particularly in American history, has been used to be a racist trope in very unhealthy ways. I just want to make clear that's not what's happening here. This Old Testament echo to Jezebel, you should think apostasy. You should think leading away from Jesus. That's what's happening. So the sense of what we get that's going on is that someone came into the church and they rose to prominence, had a voice that people respected, but then added to the finished work of Jesus and in a way that compromised people within the community. Now, I don't want to go too far to feel in speculating in exactly what the teaching is, but we can guess that it likely had to do with the various practices of the day where people were encouraged to participate in worship uh, with other, uh, others around, uh, other gods, the worship of other gods through meals, through ceremonies, through rituals, and that it was connected to your job and livelihood. So if you were in theater in the day and you worked in metal or uh, linen or pottery and you wanted to be really successful, there was not only showing up to work and working hard, there was a sense of, but you also have to participate in these other practices. You have to participate in these worship meals that honor the God of fill in the blank. And that prominent Christian leaders began to say, hey, It's not that bad. I mean, we know your primary allegiance is to Jesus. So what's a little worship of Apollo or a little worship of this other God over here or a little add-on over here? The leaders began to hyphenate the faith. That is, they began to have Christ hyphen fill in the blank. They began to add on to in a way that compromised and led people astray. I'm going to give you a little hint in case you're going to the beach this summer. There is uh, a challenge that they will often have out on the beach or on the boardwalk in various places where they have a bar that's off the ground. And they make you great promises. I will give you $100 if you can jump up onto the bar and hang onto it for 90 seconds or, fill, you know, 120 seconds, whatever it is. So, but here's the thing. Here's the tip I want to give you before you head out and think when you see that, I can do that. I've been working out. I'm pretty sure that's 100 bucks. I'm going to go for it. That bar is really, really thick. And so it's really hard to get your whole hand around the bar because of how thick it is, which means your grip strength is not going to be what you think in your head when you're looking up at it and you're blindingly distracted by the big $100 on the sign. Here's the other thing. That bar, it rolls. And uh, there's this deal with physics and with how our muscles work that when the ball rolls, there's, or when the bar is rolling, it's not the same level of stability uh, for you to be able to hang there. And so it cuts down the time that you're actually going to be able to do it. So when you have a really thick bar and when that bar rolls, you're not going to get that $100. But you don't know that because no one's told you. So you look at that and you say, that's $100. I trust my strength. I'm pretty sure I could do this. And then you jump up. What John is writing to the church in Theotira to say is, and he's writing to us to say, in the Christian life, 
we're going through thinking, I'm united to Jesus. That's where my faith is rooted. But we get distracted. And maybe it's distracted by success or health. And we think, if I just start doing these other practices plus Jesus, I'm really going to be able to do it. I'm going to be able to make it. If I can grab onto power and I can make these decisions because I'm good at this, then I can have Jesus, that's fine, but I can add on these other things. If I can just improve my reputation, either through damage control or having enough social media engagement or whatever it may be, where people think really, really well of me, that's where my true fulfillment will be found. So, yeah, Jesus, he's great, but he's only been able to take me so far. I can grab onto these other things and do it. Those are the ways that we today often, in the metro D.C. area, hyphenate our faith. We think, Jesus, yeah, that's good, that's good. But I I want to be successful as well. So Jesus will take me as far as Jesus can take me, and I'm going to add the hyphen. I'll figure out these other strategies to become successful. Or Jesus and power. Like, Jesus, this is great, but that kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus, I I kind of want power here and now to do the things that I want to accomplish. And, And so we think, oh, Jesus is fine. But, like, yeah, we also have to grab onto power ourselves. Or Jesus is good in terms of feeling secure in who I am. I, I want to do business with that sin. But listen, I really want to be thought of really well by everyone, so I need to do more. These are the ways that we see the bar of power or the bar of personal identity or the bar of success. And we think, I can do it. And we get distracted by the dollar signs and forget who we actually are. Add on to that, we forget That the idols that we're tempted to worship today, the idols of sex, money, power, personal identity, and other things, it's a thick bar that you'll never grasp, and it rolls. It will always fail you. But it's tempting. We think, Jesus, that's fine. And then we drop in that hyphen. John's writing today to challenge you to not drop the hyphen into your faith. That when it comes to Christian faithfulness, holding fast to the resurrected Jesus, that is our hope. We don't have to add to it. You don't need more power. You don't need more personal identity. You don't need success. In the first century, there was a bishop of Carthage, a man named Cyprian, And the Roman authorities came in and they said, Cyprian, you're great, but listen, we need you to honor and properly honor the emperor. Otherwise, you're going to have real problems and your whole church is going to have real problems. And Cyprian said, do you mean worship the emperor? And the Roman government said, yeah, I mean, you can call it what you want, but yeah. And Cyprian said, I can't do it. And so they began to persecute. Cyprian, and the whole Christian church. They began to take away property. They began to take away freedom. They began to take away lives. And I want to share with you, Cyprian wrote a prayer to the people of his day. And then he says, he's instructing them on how are we going to respond to all this. He writes, we must petition that peace be promptly restored. That help be quickly brought to our places of concealment and peril, so that those things may be fulfilled which the Lord decided to reveal to his servants. 
the restoration of his church, the certitude of our salvation. So he's writing to say, listen, we need to ask God that he works in this situation. He was holding fast to Jesus. Not adding a hyphen plus Roman emperor worship, but holding fast to Jesus. He continues, the restoration of his church, the certitude of our salvation, bright skies after the rain, light after darkness, a gentle calm after wild storms. We must beg that the Father sending his loving aid to his children, that God in his majesty perform, as so often his wondrous works, whereby the blaspheming of the persecutors may be confounded, the repentance of the fallen may be restored, and the courageous and unwavering faith of the persevering may be glorified. That's Cyprian's prayer for the church. That's powerful. Here's the thing with Cyprian. God did not see fit to answer his prayer where all the teaching of the blasphemers were confounded and everyone was restored. In fact, Cyprian ended up being martyred for his faith publicly because he refused to bend the knee. It becomes an example for us. Cyprian didn't see the answer to his prayer. And we may not either. But as people who confess that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is our hope both in life and in death, while we may not see all of the pressures of our day dealt with, we may not see injustice rebuked, confounded, victims restored, wrongs put to right. We may not be able to see that in our lifetime. Our hope in holding fast and faithfully to Jesus is unchanged. So like Cyprian, we're not guaranteed when we follow his pattern in in prayer that we're going to see these things. We hold faithfully to Jesus just as he did. That's what it looks like to live the Christian life. To pray faithfully, to walk faithfully, to live faithfully, to hold fast to the resurrected Jesus, and to trust that none of this is lost on God. Let us do that as a church in our time and place. Let us refuse to hyphenate our own Christian professions. Let us not give in, even as hard as it is, to loving our neighbors well, to speaking truth, to caring for one another. Let us not grow weary or grow tired. Let us hold fast to the resurrected Jesus. And let me pray that we'll do that well. God, I ask that you will watch over us as a church. And in the face of our own cultural pressures, that we will hold fast faithfully to you. That we won't fall fast to our own pride. That we won't fall fast to our own sense of uh, how to accomplish through power or success or personal identity the things that we think we need to get done. But rather that we would rest. That you would keep us from being overwhelmed by anxiety. That you would protect us. Not only individually, but as a community. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.